Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the FearCast. Everybody, this is a year. We've made it through a year. Um, I was reflecting on this because this uh, the start of my podcast uh, uh, really coincides with the birth of my daughter. I think I released the first episode like a day before uh, my wife went into labor. So seeing this little podcast grow is like seeing my little girl grow. And this past weekend, we just celebrated her first year. Uh, we cel- we had a birthday this weekend. It was Sesame Street themed. I built a Sesame Street uh, lamppost that actually lit up. We had all sorts of people. And man, we had more people than, than this little introvert wanted at my house, I'll tell you. But um, but this past year has been a blur. Um, I think it's easy to say that uh, both with this podcast um, and uh, the various episodes we've gone through and um, me trying to keep my daughter from dying, um, it's, it's the it's the longest, shortest year of my life, easily speaking. So for all of you who have been listening, thank you so much. Um, I'm I'm never going to get tired of saying that. I'm sure you are already tired of hearing it. But again, thank you all for listening. Now, by the way, if this is your first time to the podcast, I got a little ahead of myself. My name is Kevin Foss. This is The FearCast, as you now know. The FearCast is a podcast dedicated to OCD, anxiety, and how to get your life back. We are talking about issues related to OCD treatment, about anxiety treatment, about phobia treatment, um, and how to try to challenge the those things and how to try to get you back to the place that you want to be and get through this anxiety. Not get rid of it, not cure you from it, but to actually live with it because OCD and anxiety don't run your life. You do and you are not your anxiety. That's a whole separate separate other conversation. So I have a question coming up at the very end of this episode, but I want to start out today by talking about my dog and how my dog is like our brain. So hear me out. So my dog is a city girl dog. Uh, we adopted her when she was 10 weeks old. Um, she has lived in a city. She does not hunt or does not, she's not like a bird dog or doesn't do any of that stuff. She sits on a couch. She waits for me to give her food. That's her life. That's all she wants to do. So a couple of years ago, this happened. And it was the weirdest thing, and some of you folks will not like this story, but it's a reality of what happened. So, my dog went through this weird phase where the little city girl dog went full dog. Full dog. Now, what that means is she started to hunt, and she kind of got good at it. It was very weird. By the way, she has since grown out of this, but for this weird phase, here's what she would do. She would actually be fast enough to catch and kill squirrels. It wasn't my favorite trick she's ever learned, but for whatever reason, she just decided, you know what? I'm going to be a full dog and I'm going to start killing squirrels. Now, what she did was, one day when I got home, I'd usually get home from work before my wife. Uh, we'd enter in through the back of the house, through, you know, park in the alleyway behind the house and come in through the back door, things like that. So, I come home and my dog is sitting there in the backyard, just sitting there on her, you know, uh, lying all the way down, just looking at me, staring at me, tongue just goofily out the side of her mouth, tail wagging like a happy little girl. I look right next to her. What do I see? Dead squirrel, just lying on its side, also tongue out, not moving, slobber all over it. This is a dead squirrel. Not like chewed up squirrel, but like just dead. Anyways, so 
my dog is sitting there as happy as can be. And I'm going, dog, come on. This is gross. This is gross. And this is completely unhelpful. I don't want to pick this up. I'm not going to cook this for us. Why would you do this? This is not my favorite trick. Like, learn to learn to vacuum. I would like that. So, you know, I'm thinking, I got to get rid of this stinking thing before my wife gets home because she's not going to want to see a dead squirrel in our yard. By the way, I was right. So, I quickly cleaned this little thing up and I got to thinking, you know, my dog doesn't know that I don't want her to do this. She just goes, you know what? I love my humans so much. They're so great. They give me food. They let me sleep on their couch. They're so nice. So I want to do something for them. Uh, You know what? I'm going to kill them a squirrel. Not only that, I'm going to kill it and I'm going to bring it to them to show them that I defended the realm as I'm supposed to. And I brought them a little treat that we can all share tonight for dinner. My dog thought that was super, super duper helpful. My contention is it was not. It was gross, and it was not something that was going to be helpful for the family in the least bit. Again, vacuuming, do some dishes, maybe some you know light mopping here and there would be super nice. She didn't do any of that stuff. So I kind of started to think about how our brain is kind of the same way. Our brain gives us a bunch of nonsense that you and I ultimately don't want or like, but for whatever reason, our brain seems to think that this is super duper helpful for us and that we're going to like it and that we're going to look at that thought that it gives us and go, you know what? Thank you so much. So, as we've talked about on this show before, our brain's job is to try to keep us alive and to keep us from getting hurt. Now, that's can, that can be physically, that can be emotionally, however the case may be. It's trying to protect us. So, our brain is scouring the future, the past, the present. It's looking around all over for things that could potentially hurt us. Now, when it kind of does, it will present this thought to us. It will kick it to our consciousness and say, hey, you, think about this. And we look at that and we go, why would I ever want to think about this? Why would I ever want to think about stabbing my cousin? Why would I ever want to think about running somebody over with my car? Why would I ever want to think about getting booed off stage by everybody at my work? I don't want to think about this brain. Or it gets even more creative and it starts thinking about things that don't exist or have never existed or are so abstract or so disconnected from reality and will pair it with this anxiety that we have and say, hey, you, this could potentially happen. Maybe think about that. So, it's saying, hey, you, think about this as a pitfall. This could hurt you. If this really did happen, that would kind of suck, wouldn't it? So, watch out for it. It's, it's going to be something that you want to watch out for. And if you do see it, step to the side, avoid it, and when you do, you'll be happy and not hurt. You're welcome. But again, it's trying to be helpful, but you and I don't want the actual presence of that thought or that feeling that it's giving us. Now, what do we try to do? We try to fight it. I could have gone up to my dog and just yelled at my dog, hey dog, stop bringing these squirrels around the house, stop killing squirrels. I could have done that, but my dog doesn't know. She just goes, I was being, I was being helpful, what? Us yelling at our brain isn't helping either. Your brain is doing brain stuff, keeping you alive. Instead of yelling at our brain, being pissed off that it's doing it, trying to pretend like that dead squirrel thought wasn't there, 
trying to push it under the rug. Instead, embrace it. Acknowledge it. A radical approach, and this is from acceptance and commitment therapy, thank your brain. Thanks, brain, for giving me that thought. It's certainly not one that I wanted to have. It's kind of gross and weird, but thanks. I see what you're trying to do. I respect what you're trying to do. Thanks, but, but no thanks. I'll pass this time. And then we move on. In the case of my actual squirrel, I put it in the trash where, where it belonged. And, you know, it was there. But I didn't pretend like it didn't exist. And I moved on with my day. I didn't kick the dog. I just kept on going. And over time, my dog stopped doing this weird trick. Over time, your brain might not stop doing this trick. But ultimately, in part, we don't want it to stop. But the other side is, it will start to do it less. And even if it didn't, you and I can get used to the fact that our brain is going to do this weird thing sometimes. So I can either get really upset and angry and thrown off and anxious and avoidant because it's doing what it just naturally does, or I can move on with my day and, ex- and experience the life that I want to be living and keep moving on to the stuff that I actually want in my life. In my case, I want to put my pajamas on and go to bed as soon as I could. What's the thing that you're wanting to do despite the fact that your brain is giving you dead squirrels? Go and do that thing despite the fact that your brain is giving you dead squirrels. Because it's going to be okay. And it's not the end of the world. So, I know that this was a very random way to think about this, but this week, try, instead of getting angry at your brain, thank it. Thanks for looking out for me in this super weird, abstract thing that I don't want to ever do or to ever think about, but you know what? You're letting me think about this, so thanks, but no thanks, but thanks, and I'm going to keep on moving on to my life. So, I got a question coming up. Thanks. This question comes from Laura. Hi, I wanted to thank you for your recent podcasts. My husband has been struggling for months with faith doubts at scrupulosity levels, and it is all-consuming for him. He doesn't accept the OCD component his counselor diagnosed him with adjustment disorder, and he doesn't want to change his trusted therapist to a CBT-certified counselor. Any of your thoughts on traditional versus CBT are appreciated. So I actually reached out to Laura and asked her if she could give me a little bit more details about this. So she followed up with that with, my husband has been going to a counselor using psychodynamics for five months now. He agrees that his experience lines up very closely with OCD, pure O, as I've heard you talk about, but he likes his counselor and believes he's almost on the other side of his, quote, journey. I earnestly want to see him recover from the torment, yet he doesn't want to start over with another therapist. My questions, whether you can speak to them, I don't know, are, number one, psychodynamic versus CBT, general differences, but also what's the timeline, therapist relationship and experience like, two, can the psychodynamic approach be the only solution? In other words, how hard should I push to try to replace with CBT versus letting the therapeutic process work out? He thinks he has essentially figured out CBT principles himself and doesn't need it. Number three, 
how useful might a CBT workbook be on its own? I'm asking my husband to, at the very least, read through John Hirschfeld's workbook. Uh, so, Laura, those are all great, great questions, and I appreciate you uh, sending those in. So, this is uh, this is a big topic, and this could go on and on, and I, I wouldn't want to try to get it to be too nerdy. So, I just kind of want to give a little bit of an overview um, about how these two approaches differ, what are and and what are some things that you could expect in the process. So, to start with CBT, CBT is a combination of two different approaches cognitive therapy and behavioral therapy. Uh, It uses some of the advantages of both and uh, uh, builds on the advantages of both for the ultimate goal or for the ultimate result in treatment. The basic premise of CBT is that our thoughts are going to influence our behaviors. In other words, that the interpretations of the thoughts that we have, if we can rethink the way that we think about our thoughts, then that will translate into different behaviors in regards to those thoughts or to the stimulus that that brought about those thoughts. Because again, as we've been talking about with CBT, with a CBT approach, everything that you and I are ever going to think, experience, have relationships with, uh, every or the types of relationships we're going to have, rather, they're all neutral, but the interpretations we give of them is what's going to make them good or bad, wanted or unwanted, things like that. Another basic premise of CBT is that we are not beholden to our past. In other words, that we can change and that uh, um, we aren't constantly fighting all of our early childhood experiences. We'll talk a little bit more in the psychodynamic approach. But ultimately, it's it's a more here and now type of approach that is going to look at your current thoughts, your current interpretations of the world around you, and then how you're responding and interacting with that world in in an increasingly functional way. CBT for OCD is part of what we call the gold standard of treatment. So it's cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure and response prevention, and along with medication. The combination of those things, usually called the gold standard, it's uh, research shows that it's the most beneficial. It shows it over and over and over again. And again, why? Well, one of the reasons why that is is because again, it focuses on just the here and now, the thoughts that we're currently having, not the stuff that will happen or the stuff that has happened, but what are we currently experiencing. Because with OCD, anxiety pulls us out of the present and into our you know, feared future or our disastrous past or whatever the case may be. So bringing ourselves back to just what we're presently experiencing, we can have a greater understanding, eh, not a greater understanding, we can have a more reasonable and balanced understanding of viewing our actual experience, our actual thoughts, not what may happen or what has happened and our memory of what has happened, things like that. For a CBT approach, generally speaking, we say treatment for um, OCD or anxiety takes about three to six months of regular weekly treatment. Now, of course, that can be a lot longer. Of course, that can be a lot shorter. But on average, we want to say between three and six months is a good range to consider. Also, the dynamic between the therapist and the client um, is going to be more of an even playing field. You can consider it as a, more of a collaborative process where, uh, where we're trying to work together towards a common goal. And by the way, the first session, generally speaking for CBT, is where we're going to start to talk about what the client's goals are for the treatment. So you can think about it as whatever your goals are, 
are my goals because I don't want to push someone to be something they don't want to be. So we want to find out what their what their end result is, what their ideal end result is, and we'll talk about whether or not that's a reasonable goal to get to. But again, it's going to be more of a collaborative process to try to figure out where they ultimately want to go. Now, with that, the dynamic between therapist and client, it's also, uh, you can kind of think about it as this. The therapist will be the professional while the client is going to be the expert on themselves. So, what that means is the therapist is going to have a whole bunch of experience working, uh, working hopefully as a therapist, um, have a, a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience with the different conditions they're working with for OCD, for OCD and anxiety, things like that. However, the client is going to be the expert when it comes to them, meaning there's not going to be any interpretation, there's not going to be any um, assumptions and, and directives as to what you, the client, are thinking or feeling during the process but rather allowing the client to be honest about what they actually are feeling and what they actually have been going through. So psychodynamic treatment is going to be a little bit different. And generally speaking, psychodynamic, the word psychodynamic kind of comes from the the, the, the theory put out there by uh, Sigmund Freud, the classic type of psychotherapy that you see with the couch and the whole thing. Oftentimes, the word psychodynamic as a treatment can kind of be synonymous with general treatment. A lot of people will say they, they are, are a dynamic type of therapist. And and again, to, to go into what psychodynamic means in a modern perspective would be a lot longer and a lot more boring than uh, I think I really want to get into for us here today. So not knowing the exact type of therapy that your husband is going through, though you do say it is psychodynamic, um, I can't really make a whole lot of assumptions as to how strict or in, in, in what category they're coming from. So I'm just going to speak about this in, in broad generalities. So the goal of psychodynamic treatment is to get a full understanding of the true nature of the problem why it's there, what's been going on, at which point, at which point that they fully understand the issues, the the issues themselves, plus the psychological conflicts will be fully resolved and therefore will disappear. That's kind of the goal. And the therapist is going to the therapy is going to be an exploration of how the symptoms root in your early childhood relationships with your parents and early childhood experiences. This is why, classically speaking, you'll see a lot of therapists ask about your childhood and your relationship with your mom and what your siblings were like and, and, and things like that. So the theory is from those early childhood experiences and how one worked through various conflicts and through the types of relationships that you had, um, the theories that you would have developed or learned different ways to interact with the world or have developed uh, some particular quirks or issues that therefore need to be resolved later in life or else they will get, you'll, you'll get stuck in a particular stage therefore leaving you to have some of these um, diagnoses or eccentricities or whatever else they're supposed to be called. Treatment from a traditional Freudian perspective can be numerous years and, and uh, traditional psychoanalysis can be n uh, numerous sessions per week for a number of years. Now, that isn't always the case. A lot of times uh, for modern therapists, we're doing, you know, weekly one-hour sessions. So, sometimes that'll be two, twice a week, but again, it's going to depend on, on that individual therapist. Usually within psychodynamic therapy, there's going to be a power differential, whereas the therapist is seen as the authority and the client is in the one-down position. This type of therapy really isn't that helpful for OCD because it validates thoughts and feelings as being 
of utmost importance and significance, therefore needing further scrutiny analysis. So, whatever thoughts that the person would have would be considered important. So, if you had, this is where the term Freudian slip came from. If you said something offhand or misspoke, um, it would be considered as something that would be important and needs to be looked at because it might reflect or will likely reflect something a deeper or more true about the person that, that needs to be fleshed out and, again, fully discovered. Folks with OCD, though, need ultimately the opposite. They need to think less about their thoughts, and they need to analyze their thoughts and their feelings a whole lot less. Within more of a dynamic approach, there's not going to be much of of an emphasis on acceptance of uncertainty because psychodynamic treatment is intended to eliminate ambiguity and promote full understanding. This is in direct opposition of the goals of CBT treatment, which again, for OCD, this is why that uh, CBT and ERP is the gold standard. Now, psychodynamic approaches can be incredibly helpful for other things, and I think there are, there are a, a ton of psychodynamic therapists out there who are incredible. Also, by the way, psychodynamic can be synonymous with talk therapy. If you uh, hear someone talk about talk therapy, if you're doing talk therapy, this is kind of kind of what people are referring to. Because there isn't a heavy emphasis on homework or exposures or assignments or, or, or going out and doing something necessarily, but more of a talking through the various issues and memories and thoughts and feelings and, and in some cases, dreams um, as what's important. And hopefully the, the client will develop again this full understanding and everything will just go away. Now, the IOCDF also has a really interesting article on what are some things that are unhelpful in treatment. And I'm actually going to link to this on the uh, uh, the, the show page at fearcastpodcast.com. But it points out a couple other things, and I'm only going to go over two here that are within CBT that are also unhelpful. Because if you or if anybody else who's listening to this episode has ever tried to find a therapist, you go to Therapist Finder or whatever the case may be, um, they'll say, oh, I, I do CBT and I've experienced working with OCD. If you hear me yammer on about this and you read a bunch of things about OCD treatment, you'll, you'll hear us all talk about that, that for OCD, one really it should find a, if you can, find a specialist who knows what they're doing. Because just because someone has gone through CBT treatment doesn't mean that they are fully prepared for all the stuff that can happen or come across during OCD treatment. So we're going to go over these two issues, and and hopefully this will flesh out a little bit why finding a CBT therapist would be helpful. So two things. One, one problem they're talking about is called thought stopping, and the other is called cognitive therapy. The second will require a lot more discussion, but the first one, thought stopping. So this is an approach, and, and I was even taught this in school, but everybody who goes through therapy school, graduate school, um, they learn about this thing called thought stopping. And, and it, it's it's done in a number of different ways, but you can think about it like this. This is, this is the, the basic premise. Um, a person who's trying to maybe break a habit or um, I, I try to resist a type of thinking um, would would be advised to take a rubber band or something like that, put that on their wrist. And then whenever they have this thought or they have this urge or this feeling that they ultimately don't want, they're instructed to take that rubber band, pull it away from their skin and let go and snap it back to their skin. 
the theory behind this is is that well that's going to hurt. So the the snapping of the rubber band is going to create a negative association with that thought. The theory behind this, which is based in classical conditioning, another behavioral approach that uh, has. that it's incredibly sound theoretically, with that negative association, it's going to slowly reduce the presence of that thought. Now, by the way, I keep saying it's going to make a negative association. What it's actually doing is it's called positive punishment. From a classical conditioning perspective, no one actually needs to know this, but I'm going to say it anyways because I had to learn it. Um, So, positive, we're adding something. Negative would mean we're taking something away. So, reinforcement is going to be something that would increase the likelihood of something happening. Punishment is going to do something that would decrease the likelihood of something happening. So, positive punishment. I'm adding something. I'm adding the behavior of the rubber band to my skin to reduce the possibility of this thought happening. It ultimately doesn't matter. We all know what I mean when when I would say something like a negative reinforcement, but that's not important. So again, this approach in theory is tremendous. However, what it amounts to is something called thought stopping, which is a compulsion that a lot of folks with OCD and anxiety will do. Thought stopping is the effort of trying to uh, uh, shove a thought out of our brain as effortfully as possible. If I, the theory is, if I'm not thinking about this, then I'm not going to have to worry about it. Or if I'm having my obsession, I'm just going to try to pretend like that thought doesn't exist. If I were to ask you, Laura, to not think about the white elephant, how would that go for you? Probably not good. Because when we say, don't think about X, what we do is we make a rule about that and we say that this thought now is incredibly important. Don't think about the white elephant. All right, here's my white elephant that I'm, I, I'm thinking about, so don't think about this. Now, instead of not thinking about this, which is my goal, I have put it on a pedestal and put a bunch of spotlights on it and made it the most important thing, and now thinking about it twice as much as I normally do, because every other thought that then comes in is compared against this thing. Is this new thought a white elephant? No. All right. How about this new thought? Is this one a white elephant? No. So, everything is considered a white elephant. Thought suppression in the long run is not helpful. This is why um, thought stopping as an approach is also not helpful. But if someone goes to see a therapist who specializes in CBT, and also probably talk therapists will do this too, it's not helpful. So secondly, cognitive treatment. Now, why is cognitive treatment not helpful? So cognitive treatment is indeed part of CBT, It's the C part of it. From cognitive therapy perspective, the premise is is that the thought itself is the problem. Therefore, correcting the thought will result in reduced symptoms or reduced distress. So, the article on the IOCDF website uh, has an example of, of, of what this would really look like. So, the example goes like this. If I fail an exam, I become depressed, not because of my grade per se, but rather because of what I might tell myself about the grade, i.e., I am a failure, quote, I'm a failure. The aim of cognitive therapy is to help the person gather evidence for or against such faulty thinking patterns. So, the example here, uh, I might have failed an exam, but uh, I succeed in many other things. Uh, I can learn from this failure, etc. Um, 
So they're trying to challenge this faulty thinking pattern uh, to develop more helpful ways of thinking that lead to more appropriate and more helpful emotional responses. So the example here, failing the test is disappointing. It means I need to work harder to pass my next test. So while all that's really helpful and, and I'm going to be an advocate of the cognitive components within CBT for, for, for OCD, so you've heard me talk about using cognitive restructuring and challenging one's thoughts as part of CBT. Now, this can become incredibly compulsive for a, a, certain, a, a certain subsection of folks going through treatment. It can be incredibly unhelpful if it is intended, if the, if the process of cognitive restructuring or the cognitive points of CBT are used to find certainty and to, th- to think better and to try to find a right way of thinking, that can be unhelpful. However, it can be incredibly helpful if it provides a firmer grounding to accept the uncertainty that leads then to exposures. So back to the example of failing, a way that this would be helpful for CBT, provided the, the, the resulting fear of, of tests or of standardized testing or something to that effect uh, would happen because of this failure uh, in the person's then you know, doing compulsive avoidances or reassurances or, or wildly excessive studying and uh, they're experiencing a tremendous amount of distress surrounding tests, then the cognitive restructuring for that would certainly have a balanced perspective as to, you know, um, yes, you did fail this one test, but you succeed in a whole bunch of other areas, which is tremendous. So we'd work to challenge the thought that I am a failure. One, we would within OCD or anxiety treatment, we'd work to accept that yes, you are having a thought through cognitive restructuring, looking at whether or not you are truly a failure. Is there evidence to evidence to say that perhaps you're not fully a failure? Things like that. Also, if we can then accept that perhaps you're not fully a failure, though you did fail, we can accept the thoughts about failure, accept the possibility of potential failure in the future as an inevitability for all of us, and also to accept and even embrace those thoughts of us failing all of our tests, failing out of college or high school, and never succeeding in life. Now, those aren't fun thoughts, of course not, but challenging a thought and saying, sure, I'm, no, I'm not fully a, a failure doesn't really help us to deal with the presence of the thought because your brain doesn't care about this balanced view. It says you're a failure, period. And now we need to tolerate the presence of that thought. So that's why cognitive therapy in and of itself isn't really that helpful for OCD. Now, again, this is going to be part of stuff that uh, you'll hear CBT therapists talk about for folks who are looking for therapists out there. So, so let's go back to the specific questions that you asked in uh, uh, your follow-up question. So, psychodynamic, psychodynamic versus CBT. Um, talk about the general differences. I hope I did that. What's the timeline, time frame, uh, three to six months versus forever. Um, and uh, the therapist relationship, one down versus an egalitarian sort of uh, cooperative relationship. Okay, two. Can psychodynamic 
approach be the only solution? No. I hope I've answered that too. Uh, in other words, uh, how hard should I push to add or replace CBT versus letting the therapeutic process work out? He thinks he has essentially figured out CBT principles himself, so he doesn't need it. So, I'm torn on this one as per usual. If he trusts his therapist and he feels that he is making progress and he is, if he is objectively making progress towards his goals, then pushing him to change may not necessarily help at this point in treatment. When you're talking with him about his progress, you can have him reflect on the experiences that he's had in treatment, how he's noticing change, and how both of you two are noticing change, both in the presence or in the the response to to his symptoms, to the obsessions, and to compulsions. I mean, in short, you can just say, if he seems to be his old self again, or if he's feeling more free, things like that are are ways that you can frame that. Now, if by those metrics he's not making any progress, but he's, you know, feeling better about himself or he's feeling happier, which can be helpful, certainly. Uh, If he's not making any progress towards reducing compulsions and embracing his fears, then I would continue to encourage encourage him having him read uh, articles about CBT versus psychodynamic. You can go to the uh, FearCast podcast page and uh, uh, it'll link to that article. And again, it'll talk about psychodynamic in there as well. Now, as you've also heard me before, CBT is also not the only approach out there for OCD. Um, Acceptance and commitment therapy and other mindfulness-based approaches can also be incredibly helpful. Again, with ACT, there's not really going to be a heavy focus on exposures, but if one is doing ACT as it's intended, you will be addressing your fears through the course of you living your life. In other words, through living your commitments, but that'll be for a whole separate conversation. All right, to your last question. How useful might a CBT workbook be on its own? I'm asking my husband at the very least read through John Hirschfeld's book. Can it be helpful? Yes, of course, it can be incredibly helpful. And it can start to get him to start thinking about these techniques, how he's seeing these within his own work. Maybe he's going to say, gosh, man, we're not talking about this stuff at all, which might spur him to approaching his therapist with questions about this and saying, hey, can we do these things? And if the therapist says, sure, then great, it could be very helpful. And they say, no, we're not doing this. This is unhelpful. That might be another entrance into a conversation about finding a CBT-specific therapist. Okay, Laura, I know that my answer was probably both long-winded and yet not exhaustive. So, um, I appreciate you hanging out. I hope this helps answer your question. Um, I know seeing loved ones go through this process can be incredibly painful. Finding a therapist and and going through the process can be time-consuming and a a huge burden and can be very stressful for everybody involved. So, I hope this does help. And and by the way, for you, there are are going to be a, a number of books out there just about OCD, but also um, about the family's response to it. Um, to John Hirschfeld's credit, I believe he has a book uh, out there um, on the family support and the, the family component for OCD. So uh, I'd encourage you to read through one of those books if you haven't already. So again, thank you so much for the question, and I hope your husband makes the progress that he's looking for. And there it is, everybody. Thank you for making it through this episode of the Faircast. We made it through a year, everybody. 
so exciting. So as you heard from this episode, if you have a question that you would like me to answer in a future episode, go over to fearcastpodcast.com. Go to the submit a question link there and uh, you can submit a question that uh, I will probably answer on a future episode. Um, if you have feedback for the show, if you want to hear more of something, less of something, you want to hear me talk about something specific, um, go over to fearcastpodcast.com and you can also, again, go to the submit a question link and let me know. I would love to hear about it. If you like the show, uh, head over to iTunes or wherever else that you get your podcasts and uh, write me up a little review. Uh, give me a star, give me a like, whatever it might be on that platform. Uh, it, uh, it means a ton to me and it will help other people find the show. As always, remember that the FearCast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you have questions about getting started into therapy or needing a, a little bit of help trying to find uh, some resources or referrals, uh, go over to fearcastpodcast.com. There's going to be a resources page there and uh, there'll be some helpful links uh, for you there. All right, everybody, until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and don't take your brain too seriously. Bye.